Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Shelly Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. We're very excited to have Christy Zolke with us today. Christy is an entrepreneur, idea generator, and global consumer insights and strategy expert with six years of proven strategic leadership experience at Procter & Gamble and a three-time company founder. Both Patrick and I are very excited about having her with us today. Hi, Christy. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. So, Christy, just to uh, kick it off, uh, would you mind sharing with our audience what the idea was behind Knowledge Hound? How did you come to create that company? Yeah, absolutely. So I started my career at Procter & Gamble. So uh, P&G makes brands such as Tide, Gillette, uh, Bounty. So major household brand names that you're probably familiar with. And I had the privilege of working on several of their brands and in a role that was a bit of a hybrid between marketing and market research. So It was my job to be the voice of the consumer in all of the decisions that we would make on these brands. So, for example, I worked on Gillette for a while and marketing would come and say, here's the new Gillette advertisement. And it was my job to say, he's going to love it. He's going to hate it. We need to talk about this benefit instead of this other one for him to resonate with this. And if I didn't know the answer to that... I would go and field market research to then come back and help the company make a new strategic decision on our marketing or go to market plan or whatever it may be that was very much consumer centric. And so through that experience, I experienced a pain point. And that was I would be in a meeting, just as the example I gave you, and the team would come to me with a question. And I would know we knew the answer because we'd spent millions of dollars in the past researching various topics. And yet I didn't have a way to access the data that we already had. So, for example, I might be in a meeting and someone might say, hey, Christy, uh, what percent of people use a shampoo and conditioner when washing their hair? I'm sure we've asked that plenty of times. But I really didn't have the answer at my fingertips. I'd have to go back and figure out where we had it. And so in my mind, I thought, wow, what if we had this Google-like experience, but for our data? So not searching documents and PowerPoints necessarily. I could do that with my share drive. But what if we could actually search data? And so that's where I got this idea for Knowledge Hound. So Knowledge Hound is a hybrid between Google-like search and Tableau-type visualization for the market research world. So our clients are Fortune 1000 companies who are spending some money or a lot of money in market research and understanding their consumers. Wow, that's great. Thanks. And I, I do remember when we spoke a while back, I thought right out of college you had wanted to start your own business and you had a mentor at that time who encouraged you to go into the corporate world. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I've always known I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I started in in high school, I actually started a 
journal that I have to this day that has all my different business ideas in them. And so when I was looking at colleges, I picked a university that at the time had and still does have a major in entrepreneurship. At that time in 2001, it was very rare to actually find a college with an entrepreneurship major. And I chose to go to Xavier University because one of the reasons was because of this major. And so I actually went to school to learn how, what are the struggles of entrepreneurs, how to overcome those barriers, et cetera. And I started my first business when I was in college. And because of that, I sat on the board of entrepreneurship for the university. And I sat on that board among very accomplished entrepreneurs and then also very accomplished entrepreneurs. And entrepreneurship is really a, a term that means within a large company, how do you act and think entrepreneurial? And I met this woman who at the time worked at PG and she said, Christy, what are you going to do when you graduate? And I said, well, I'm definitely going to go start a, another company. And she was like, okay, well, what are you going to start? And I said, well, I don't really know yet, but it's going to be something. And she gave me some really great advice that changed my life for, you know, the path at least that I would, I would go down in life to start with, which was, she said, listen, why don't you come to P&G and you can work on billion dollar brands, learn how large organizations are run, learn how to be a critical thinker and a leader and have this as your playing ground for mentorship and growth and then go start a business. And I thought that that was a really good idea. Why should I just jump right into entrepreneurship when I was probably pretty naive about a lot of ways that a company could be run? And so that's what I did. I left, uh, I graduated from Xavier and I joined Procter & Gamble and I was there for six years and I was a sponge. I was there with a mindset of how do you run a company, which is a bit rare for people going into corporate America, but it was a wonderful experience. I'm so glad I did it. It gave me my business idea that I have and working on today and an amazing network of people. Wow, that's great. And and do you feel like that experience uh, changed the way that you mentor entrepreneurs today? For sure. Absolutely. In a couple different ways. One is that I talk to a lot of future entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs who are in corporate America today. And one of the questions they almost always ask is how did you make the decision to leave your corporate job to start a company? And most of it is around the question of security. You know, how do you go from a world that's very secure where your paycheck shows up magically in your checking account twice a month, where the risk is so much lower? And how do you just mentally get over that hurdle of saying, okay, I'm going to leave that all behind. And the next day, I'm not going to know where my paycheck is going to come from. And so there's a lot of that mentorship that goes into talking with aspiring entrepreneurs 
And then current entrepreneurs who've never worked in the corporate world often will talk about how are these large organizations run? What are the politics involved? What are the forces that are happening inside these large organizations that those of us who aren't inside the company can't possibly understand? Uh, why aren't deals going through? And you know, who do I need to align inside of a large organization? It's just a lot of mentorship around that structure and experience of being inside of a large organization that if you've never were, you don't understand all the nuances that take place to get a deal done or to get a partnership secured or an investment secured. You know, I gotta be honest, part of what I I can't get my mind out of is that notebook. What are some of the other ideas that you had way back when? Like, what is the craziest idea that you had in your notebook about things that you were going to do? Do you remember? Well, yeah, I definitely do. A few of them have come to to light uh, in the world. So one is this whole idea that before you go into a grocery store, you actually send a list of all of your groceries that you wanted to buy. And when you got to the store, you'd have a device on your shopping cart. And it would map out the entire store and show you where everything was on the aisle. And you could then would be coupons. So that would lead you to new new types of products that you might enjoy that were complimentary or that might go with your pasta. Here's the wine section uh, and help you shop as you went. And then you would check out as you would go. Now, this idea was, I wrote down when I was, I believe, a junior. So this in high school. So this was 1999. So this is about, what is that? Like, you know, eight, nine years probably before this first iPhone came out, smartphone, true smartphone came out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I had this yeah. vision of some heavy hardware <laughs> that was required to get this done. But it's a bit of Instacart plus um, iPhone plus self-checkout altogether. So that was, you know, that was one of those ideas that I'm like, oh, yeah, well, I already thought of that. <laughs> well, and and to keep the context of the time, I mean, in, in 98, 99, Amazon was not what it is today. Right? No, so yeah. Amazon back then was, was one of many, many e-commerce plays. It was not the one, you know, Amazon. So it, 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 that's very interesting. Yeah. You know, I'm intrigued with the, uh, the concept of, you know, going to school to be an entrepreneur. What is about entrepreneurship that gets you excited? What is it that creates that passion in you? I really think it is this passion for creating something new and identifying a problem and knowing that I could fix it. I don't see a lot of barriers. So there's some people in this world, and I think it's a bit genetic, honestly. So there's people in this world who look at a problem and go, ugh, like if only I could have this and this. And they think of all the reasons why it's impossible to have that. Uh, so for example, autonomous driving vehicles, I think is a great example of someone saying, you know what, this needs to happen. And it's going to happen. And then all the, the majority of the population saying, 
there's no possible way that that could happen. You'd have to have, how are you going to get all the, the cars that don't have autonomous driving onto the road? How are you going to, how does the, it not hit people? How do you, you know, there's a laundry list of things of why autonomous driving vehicles won't work. But my, the way my brain works is that I think through, instead, I don't see that laundry list of all the reasons why it can't happen. I see all the reasons why it should happen. And I even think back to, you know, Henry Ford and creating a car that anyone can drive. There's so many reasons why someone at that time would say that wouldn't work. So you'd have to have the infrastructure. What happens when you come to an intersection? Are people going to hit each other? Uh, What happens when you have a pedestrian? There's so many reasons why cars should never been invented. And think of how much money right now fuels our economy just by keeping up our infrastructure for cars. It's pretty amazing. And so why can't you develop that for autonomous driving vehicles? But that parallels into any new innovation for me. So it's like, why can't you create a new skin cream? It's Of course you can. Why can't you create a technology that is a blend between Google and Tableau? Of course you can. It's a lot just about right timing, product market fit, the right people on board in your organization, getting investors to invest. I mean, there's so many barriers to overcome, but at the same time, it's not impossible. Yeah, you touch on a great point around uh, innovation and one of the automobile industry, I'm not sure everybody's aware, but the amount of regulations that they tried to slow down automobiles, right? Many states, many, many municipalities had a lot of rules that if you came to an intersection, one in fact required that if you were operating a car, you stopped and fired off a gun to notify everybody <laughs> that you were coming through an intersection. <laughs> but that that's what happens when you mess with, you know, the big horsewhip industry. They're just, you know, they're they're a power voting block in the Congress and, you know, so you you gotta deal with those types of uh, you know, large players in your industry. So I really just want to use the phrase big horsewhip industry. You yeah. know, I've, been, <laughs> I've been sitting on that for a while. It's been incubating. <laughs> Felt like the right time. But uh yeah, it's uh it, it, it's very interesting. And I, I, I do wonder a lot of people when I talk to them, they talk about like, oh, I I've always thought about doing it. I I should have or I would have or I might have or or a lot of those things. And and I think for a lot of people it's more accidental. Uh, maybe intentionally accidental, right? Like uh, I fully intended to do it and, or I always thought I would. And then all of a sudden a window opportunity presented itself. So one of the thoughts that I, I think people struggle with, you know, like, am I an entrepreneur? Am I an entrepreneur? Am I wired for this kind of thing? I think a lot of times people put this uh, label on folks as being optimists, right? Like, would you consider yourself like, an optimist or a pessimist or, and I, I really won't accept the term realist because that requires knowing what the truth is. And since no one has that, I just think that's a, that's kind of like a, a half-baked pessimist who just doesn't want to admit that they're a pessimist. So, <laughs> but I guess, you know, like from your perspective, you know, are you an optimist? Is that, are you optimistic or what is that like personality type to be able to go into a situation where it's like, yes, there's a lot of headwinds and there's a lot of potential for failure. And there's, you know, there's a lot of negative outcomes that are perceived. And, and I think perception is an important part of that. So I guess, yeah, uh, optimist, pessimist, what does that, what does that mean? What is that, 
How do you think that feels for you? I'm absolutely an optimist. I am a passionate optimist though. So what has to happen as an entrepreneur is that you have to feel so passionate about solving a problem that you're willing to get up every morning and fight for solving it. And I believe there's a lot of optimists in this world, but you have to have this combination of optimism and passion to solve a problem. Now, optimism will get you so far. There is a need for pessimists inside of a growing company. And so really where I've struggled and where I've had to retrain myself is moving from the transition from founder to CEO. And founders tend to be very optimistic, passionate people about solving a particular problem. And then once you gain venture funding or once things start not going exactly as your forecast predicted, you have to turn yourself into a pessimist and be able to critically think through what is going wrong. And that takes time to retrain your brain because you feel one, so passionate about what you're doing. So of course there couldn't be anything wrong with it. And second, you're an optimist. So you think, you know what, next quarter, it'll be better. Next quarter will be fine. And when it's not, it's really hard to then get your head wrapped around, how can I look at this a little bit more critically and be more critical of this business that I've been so passionate about and that I've sold the vision to all of my employees, all of my venture capitalists, all the people that I've pitched, my family, my spouse, my grandma, you know, like everyone. <laughs> and Gram- Grandma's always an easy sell. I mean, if, if I honestly... <laughs> <laughs> right. If I was if I was in Cook County, my grandma would be bragging I was like prisoner of the month. Right. Like <laughs> Pat's doing great down in county. It's yeah. awesome. He's he's the rising star in, inside That's the right. That's right. Yeah, for sure. I mean grandma's the easy sell. But you know, as soon as you raise money or as soon as you have got these goals that you communicate to your organization, things aren't gonna go right. And so you have to train yourself to be, to think a little bit different, which can be hard for someone who is an optimist like I am. But for sure, I'm an optimist. My husband is a, he's a pessimist. I I do hate that word because it sounds negative. He's not negative. He just, he is so black and white and he's a great balance to me. I think we'd be great business partners someday. But it is just so, it's so refreshing though, because you need those people inside your organization as an entrepreneur. You need to actually hire them, those people who are going to help you see the opposite side of the coin and say, you know what, though, there's opportunity over here and we could be doing this better instead of this is great. Let's just do more of this and more of that. So, and that's a great comment. And I would say uh, having been married through starting three different companies. Uh, your spouse is a business partner. That's already a foregone conclusion from my perspective, yeah. right? Like, 
you know, uh, you guys are wired together. But I guess uh, that does lead to the other question is, you know, that yin and yang that you, you mentioned. Is there somebody in your organization that, that plays that role for you on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, I'm a, an interesting case where I didn't – I had a technical co-founder, uh, and he was he was very technical. He was a developer, and uh, and so it wasn't necessarily the right role for him to scale as an operator inside the organization. And so I've really had to play both roles, operator and CEO, for quite a while. But now I've been able to hire enough folks around me and promote folks into more operational type roles who've been able to, over time, take quite a bit off my plate so that I can exercise much more of my strength, which is the visionary piece, the, the sales side of me. And it's interesting, too, you look at some CEOs and they are very operational CEOs. They love to get into the details. They love to talk through processes and optimize processes with inside the organization, whereas other CEOs like myself, we're much more externally facing, we're sales oriented, and making sure that you hire people that complement you is really critical. And I've been able to do that uh, with inside the organization, thankfully. Yeah, I think you touch on a really important issue of uh, the difference between founders and managers, right? Mm-hmm. And I think somebody who has a sales marketing background can bridge that gap to a certain degree. But I do think when when you see a lot of people who are promoted to CEO more through the operational branch, you get more risk mitigation than growth perspective and selling and, and outward activities. And too often I find those types of leaders uh, view sales uh, somewhat as a, a dirty part of the business, right? It's not something that they can control. It's not something that they they can put into a spreadsheet and draw a straight line across. And I, I do think that is one of the most powerful aspects of founder-led organizations is that the founder at the beginning took whatever resources they had around, turned it into something of value to somebody else, and turned it into value for themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's a trick, a magic trick all into itself. So one other thought, I, I, getting back to the, the optimism, pessimism, are you familiar with the Stockdale Paradox from Good to Great? Uh, I read the book a while ago, but I can't remember what the paradox is about. Remind me. Yeah. So uh, Stockdale was, uh, he was a pilot uh, during the Vietnam War. He was uh, stuck in, in prison for a very long time and obviously went through some unimaginable experiences and he never broke through this whole time. And when Jim Collins was interviewing him, he, he said, well, you know, how did you get through all this and, and you didn't break? And he's like, well, I knew I was going to win. And he's like, oh, you're an optimist. And he's like, no, the optimists are the first ones gone mm-hmm. because they have this concept that things are just going to work out. I knew I was going to win, but I knew it was going to be hard. Yeah. And I think that's part of the challenge I see with a lot of people who start that path of either entrepreneurship or entrepreneurship is not understanding that it's possible, but it's going to take a lot of endurance. It's going to take a lot of of will, and it's going to take a lot of dealing with setbacks. And I guess, uh, you know, you're in fourth year now with Knowledge Hound. Is that correct? <laughs> Six years. Yeah. Six. Sorry. Forgive me. So, yeah. So, you're well. So, I always see that three, four years is is kind of like that. You've got to get through those first three years, four years, 
to just even feel somewhat safe that For sure. this is going to work. Yeah. Yes. And you, if you're doing your job, you're constantly paranoid. So you're at any moment, you feel like the business could go away. And I've talked to CEOs of companies that are 70 million and a hundred million and they still, they'll say, Christy, it never ends. You always feel as though there are catastrophes inside the organization. And going back a little bit to the good to great example, I don't agree that optimism has to be something different than grit or that they can't go together. So I do think you can be an optimist and have an amazing amount of grit and be a realist. And and so I don't know as though you know, you, you're stuck in a cell and you're going, yeah, I'm going to win. I think optimists have a very similar, some of us have a very similar mentality and you almost have to have that optimism to say, yeah, I'm going to get through this. Uh, and it does, it takes, it's more so grit in my opinion than anything else. But there's also though something to be said, there's for sure the set of entrepreneurs who don't have the grit or the aspiring entrepreneurs who just they don't have the grit to make it through because it takes three, four, five years. There's some companies I've heard takes 10 years to really get to a breakthrough point. And that takes grit to get through that. But also you could say, you could argue that those entrepreneurs, some of them are really brilliant that recognize two years in, listen, this isn't working. I'm going to go to a different business idea that's a lot easier to do that has maybe better product market fit that I can spend my resources again. So I think some people could look at me and say, you're six years in and you're a company of 20 people. You should be 200. You've got grit and you're stubborn and you're an optimist. And those are all great things. But at the same time, give it up already and go do something that's going to be a billion dollar company tomorrow. Or other people could look at me and say, wow, you really toughed it out. You know what it's like to be an entrepreneur. So I don't think there's a right or wrong way to do this. It, but it does, it does take this stubborn grit, optimism, I mean, all kinds of emotions and personalities to, <laughs> on a daily basis to get through it. That's a good point. I, I agree with you. Yeah, 100%. The one phrase I always go back to is just don't quit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You you can you can fail. That's okay. Yeah. yeah. Right? Like my wife said that to me one time, she's like, "It's okay. You can fail, but you can't quit." And I think that's really what it however you do that, right? Whether you do that with a smile on your face or a scowl or like you you like just have visions of like kids you didn't like growing up. I'm not saying that's me. <laughs> this isn't therapy. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, Kevin Gerlecki, I'm going to find you. So <laughs> <laughs> that's a, That's an actual person. He, he'd enjoy that. He'd laugh because he, he stole all my baseball cards growing up. I'm not. Bitter. Oh man. Sorry. Sorry. So Shelly, I'm sorry. I feel like I cut you off a couple of times and no, I'd like no, to stop talking just, now. I'm so curious because talent is critical in any business, but when you're dealing with a startup 
every time you add one person, it can change the dynamics of everything. So I'm very curious, uh, Christy, how you've built out your team. What are some of those core attributes that you look for in your hires? And maybe what are some um, mistakes you've potentially made? Or what are some of the best hires that you've made? Yeah, you are so right, Shelley. And of course, you would get this more than more than I would even just with your background and what you do for a living and you do it very, very well. And as an entrepreneur, you don't get to hire the Shelly yet. You know, you have to wait until you're a much bigger organization to hire someone who is amazing at identifying talent for your organization. So you have to wear that hat. And what we did about three years in is we identified six values that we run the company on. And I sometimes cringe at even saying it because it sounds so cliche. You know, everyone's like, oh, I got these values and we, you know, run the company (laughs) by this and whatever. But we really do. We have six values that we run the company on and we don't forget about them. We have them posted in our, in our main meeting room that we meet with uh, the whole company every Monday morning. And at the end we do a company stand up and at the end of the company stand up, we, take 10 minutes to give appreciations based on people living out values inside of our organization. So for example, I might say, you know, I want to recognize Sam and appreciate her for being customer obsessed last week. She absolutely crushed the renewal with this client and et cetera. And we do that to each other every Monday morning. And we've now taken those values and, you have, we interview based on those values. So we do a skills interview, of course, uh, for anyone we're hiring and into whichever role that we're hiring them into. But after, and sometimes even before they go through the skills interview, we interview them based on the values. So each person in the company, or we'll have three people take two values and their whole job is to interview someone based on those val- the two values that we've assigned to that interviewer. And so if they don't pass the values, they, the section, we don't hire them, which can be brutal for someone, if, especially if they're like an amazing engineer, for example. Developers are so hard to come by. They can make a huge exponential impact on your organization if they're a fantastic developer, but they can also bring down your entire organization if they don't match your values. And so it's so hard and we have turned away and not given offers to amazing salespeople, amazing engineers and amazing client success people because they just didn't fit with our values. And so I think that's been a real key to creating the culture and making sure that we've hired the right people. Now we have for sure hired, not hired the right people who we've even interviewed through the value system. And it's mostly been due to not seeing maybe the grit that was claimed they had in the interview or not understanding, or they get into the company and they realize they just don't have the passion for, for Knowledge Hound. And that's okay. But for us, recognizing it very quickly for the individual and for the company is really critical so that they're not around for six, nine months to a year. And we then decide that we're both not a good fit for each other. It's 
assessing that pretty early so that both of us can move on with our careers and our company and make sure that neither of us are impacted in a significant way. I think that's really powerful stuff, especially when you're trying to create that culture. So you mentioned the the being customer obsessed. Is that, the, you know, my experience with core value driven organizations, there's usually like a primary, right? And then there's a lot of, and maybe I'm, I'm making some assumptions here, so forgive me, but if you mentioned customer obsessed, is there another one that you think is really a, an important aspect where you go, if they don't have this, uh, they, they just can't work here? Yeah, I think there's two other ones that I notice pop up a lot in our appreciations, which are team first and bias to action. So team first, is it has to be all about how everyone wins instead of how that in one individual wins. And especially in a startup, that's critical because what ends up happening is you reorg five different times. You, now I'm exaggerating a little bit, but things shift. No, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and if you think there's a communication plan on those five reorgs, you're crazy. It's called lunch. <laughs> Right. All right. You're linebacker. I'm shifting to safety. Uh, I don't know, really. Let's try it this afternoon. Exactly. I love it. It's been so true. And so you have to be team first and then also bias to action. The worst is, oh my gosh, it drives me crazy when, when people want to pontificate for hours and days and weeks about how do we solve a problem and I don't care. I let's get some, let's come up with an idea. <laughs> let's execute it and fail really fast. And then we'll go do the next one. But people who are afraid, yeah. who are paralyzed by this fear of failure are not a good fit for knowledge hound. Uh, and probably not a good fit for smaller startups in general. No, I, I, I see that all the time. Uh, I, I do talk to a lot of to small startup CEOs as well. And I think there's a, a lot of folks out there that really don't understand what it's like to work in a an environment like that. I think they aspire and they they find it interesting, uh, but the way I I, def, I describe it to people is it's like driving down the street with your head out the window, right? Like it, everything's coming at you a million miles. You're picking bugs out yeah, of your teeth, yeah. right? It's like, and luckily it's raining too, right? So, and I and I think there's a certain personality type that enjoys that type of environment. So as you're growing and, you know, you you start hitting some of those numbers where, you know, I went through this with with my, uh, my last company where, you know, you go from a flat structure, which is a great and fun environment, right? Everybody's just scrappy and doing what they're supposed to do. Now, when you start moving to larger organizations, that management structure, from my experience, always seems to come in, right? And it's got to be there. Is that is that the phase that you're at right now? And is there things that you're doing to to create, still retain that scrappiness? Because I think that's where the plateau happens is you start to, you start bringing in management and you tilt a little bit too heavy on the over architecture on management. And, you know, you got one person reporting to one person who reports to one person. <laughs> you got like, and then that one person has 20 people reporting to them. I don't know. Is that something, is there any kind of experience like that that you could share? Yeah. Yeah, you know, we've kept our organization pretty flat. However, I, I actually to spin it a little bit in a different direction. We've kept it pretty flat, and in a way, I wonder if that's discouraging though to our employees thinking, okay, well, what's my 
career progression here because we have been pretty conscious of that is how do you make sure there aren't layers and how do we make sure we operate in the most efficient way at the same time if you've been at knowledge hound for three years you kind of go okay well when do i get to take that manager role or you know what's my next move and so i i do think it's a delicate balance communication becomes harder with a larger organization and with layers for sure. And we've gone through some growing pains on that. I'm actually talking with my executive coach right now on how do I make sure that the key messages for what I want to communicate to the organization are constantly and consistently being communicated throughout the entire organization. And we're only 21 employees. So if it's that like that with 21 employees, I can't imagine what it's like at 60 and 100 and 300. And so it's hard. And with those layers come communication issues. And so, again, as a CEO, as a founder, you've evolved to CEO as best as you can. And then now as CEO, you have to evolve to, you have to have that piece of pessimism. Now you have to gain a new skill of communicating a single message across a large organization to everyone and make sure all of your executives are then communicating that down to everyone inside their organization. It really does become complex. And I've seen very flat organizations work really well. I've seen hierarchical organizations work very well. I'm not sure there's one way that's right or wrong, but I do agree that there's major implications to either way that you choose And you have to be agile and recognize those issues when they arise. I don't know if that makes sense or answers your question, but. Yeah, it totally does. And and like where you're at right now with that, you know, 15 to 25 is like uh, the worst case scenario, right? Because you're you're not big enough to actually go have like a full-time manager for some of those things where it's like, no, I I can't have a manager of one person, but you're also not small enough where you know, having a meeting with the company is called lunch. Yeah, you're exactly right. right. Yeah, And so you're kind of, and this is that place where you're in the middle of the river and it's like, I just (laughs) got to keep going. Right. Right. And I think Shelly could probably talk to this a little bit too, is that right at this point, a lot of times you're hiring for player coach roles. So you have to find someone who's willing to not only be the manager of the team, but also execute. And that's hard, especially we see that within the sales organization and the engineering organization. So you, as a salesperson at Knowledge Hound, you can't not be leading one or two deals yourself. And you have to do that. And then also you have to manage. And same thing with engineering. Our VP of engineering, he writes code. <laughs> so I don't know, Shell, if you have more to add with that, but I feel like you and I have had a lot of conversations about tech talent and, and how do you find a player coach and when do they actually graduate to being not a player. No, that's really interesting because we actually hire the same way here. And we look for grit. We look for bias for action. In fact, that's one of our core attributes that we hire for. Um, So even though we have many professionals who've come out of large organizations, we make sure during the interview process that they are going to be both uh, very strategic as well as roll up their sleeves, get in the weeds with everyone, and they want to make an impact. So it sounds very similar to Knowledge Hound. Absolutely. One thing I would submit, though, is there's uh, the concept that, you know, as you're going through this evolution when you're starting out a small business and, and you're, you're whether it's internally or externally, 
you know, you've got a visionary and generally what the visionary is looking for is a lot of people who are operators, people who do, right? They just, they execute. They, they don't really yep. require a lot of guidance or management. They just, and there's, there's a certain amount of error that's acceptable in that space, right? You're still testing a lot of things. You're trying a lot of things. You're, you're still doing a lot of experimentation and trying to find that product market fit. So it's okay, right, to have a little bit of the the slop. And then you start getting to, you know, this one great book calls it the fun phase where you start selling and everything's flowing and you're growing. And you've got this cadre of operators that really were high functioning and they've been through that first three years. And they've, they've really, they've got the the battle scars and they're grizzled veterans, right? And they're, they're right. just, they know what they're doing. Right. And as you're growing, you start bringing on some of the people who, you know, it's, you, as much as you try to transfer that culture, right, those hero stories, those remember when, you know, we took that shot and it worked out and like those things are embedded into your rituals and your traditions. But then management, you know, that whole management conversion, some of the folks that were there aren't going to make that transfer. Right. Right. They're, they're not going to be there because they that's just not who they are. Right. Right. They they don't they don't want that. They don't want to be put into a pen or some kind of construct. They they're just operators. And and so I do think there's some of that is a, a, just a natural evolution of like, hey, you know, this is the the time for you to go. Right. And it's like, you know, this isn't, you know, where the organization is going because the fun ends up hitting what they call this whitewater phase of you're making a lot of mistakes. Clients are starting to say no. You're starting to have some some people who, you know, used to be advocates are now like, hey, you know, do you not even care about me anymore? And so then, then you fall into the other side where it's like over management. And that's generally when the founder leaves because it's no longer fun and everything's turning into like a death knell. Yeah. And so there's a big cycle there. I forget the name of the book, but it's it, it does really draw out the different types of personalities that you need from that raw startup phase of like, how do we take something that doesn't exist? And I don't have time or money for management. You, you've just got to help me figure it out. Right. And there are certain people and I... I think back in those phases, you you do a better job hiring then only because the only people who take the job are the crazy ones, which yeah, is what you yeah. need. So it's almost like a self-filter <laughs> of like, okay, I'm just going to make clear how hard this is going to hurt. And uh, you either want the job or it's not a good fit. Well, And, and I think the management component's a real uh, thing where it's like, you know, a, a visionary person who's action-oriented and wants to get out and do things. Uh, is going to be reticent. I, I speak for myself as well, reticent to put any more management structure than absolutely you know yeah. necessary. Yeah. And uh, but I also, it's also a limiting uh, component as you as you're growing because you hit that white water and it's you're up and down and you're losing clients and losing money and projects projects or clients or the revenue is not where it needs to be to sustain or to reinvest. Yep. Back on kind of what you said at the beginning of that was it's a harsh reality and it stinks, especially for an optimist where you you're hiring people and you're like, you know what? The potential here, you could become the, uh, I'm making this up, but you could become the CTO of this organization and because they could, but most people should never become a CTO. Most people should never become a COO. Most people should never become a CEO. I'm only CEO because I founded the company. I just get default CEO, which isn't necessarily fair. But, you know, and so your hope for those people is that they grow into that. The bummer is when you real you both realize the skill set 
or one of you realizes that their skill set will never, they're not the right person for, to be in that role. And that was hard for me to realize coming into this is that there's going to be people who have aspirations for themselves and they want to achieve certain things, but it's not the right move for them or it's not the right, uh, they don't have the right skill set. It's not the right time. It's, or it's not the they're right not ready time. For it. Right. Exactly. They're too early in their career or exactly. So it's really hard to have that conversation with people. And even for me, like I want everyone to succeed and fulfill their dreams. And I'm even bummed out when it happens, you know? So I, and that's something I never thought about before founding a company and having to face it head to head. I never thought about, oh, that would happen someday. And it has, it has happened a lot inside Knowledge Hound in particular. And yeah, so I, I think it's a really interesting point that people often don't talk about. Well, and I think when you're you're a founder and you're a startup, um, you can typically only afford to hire where you're at currently within your business, not where you anticipate being in three to five years, right? And Christy, I just want to recognize because I you, I know that you are so incredibly humble. Um, you're forty under forty. You're one of the most recognized women in tech here in Chicago and beyond. Um, just curious, you know, what you feel about the scene here in Chicago for women in technology, what resources groups are out there? What is um, some advice that you might give to our listeners? Yeah, I think Chicago has been great as a, or has a lot of support for females entrepreneurs in Chicago. So no complaints there. There's a couple organizations that I have leveraged or I'm a part of to mentor one is WTF, uh, Women Tech Founders. Uh, <laughs> they do a great job of creating a community uh, with women and resources um, and men, uh, which I think is really important that all of these organizations that I'm talking about accept men into their organization. We need men to help us move the needle forward. And so you have access though to mentors. You have access to each other as resources, but mentorship as well. So Women Tech Founders is one, so WTF. Um, another is Wisdom, uh, which is out of 1871, and they're actually an accelerator for uh, women in tech. And if you've got a business idea, you can uh, submit it and go through the program, and they will walk you through the critical steps that it takes to get your your business from concept phase to actually functioning. And then there's Forward, FWD, uh, which is a great resource as well for women and men uh, that is all about how do we advance women forward in the startup scene, in the entrepreneurial scene. And again, they have lots of resources. They do conferences that have great content that can help you understand, okay, how do I how do I get from, you know, A to B and, okay, now I'm at this stage, what do I do? So there's a lot of resources here. I think what's been the most impactful for me is just having personal mentors. Mm -hmm. And I would say very important is that you have both male and female mentors, because again, it, the men are the ones that who are having the success. And so we need them to bring us along for the ride and help us get there as well. And so I have found so many supportive men. And I think most of them don't even look at me as a male or a female. They look at me as an entrepreneur uh, that they're mentoring. And that is so critical. 
Uh, and I know some of them who have even said like, hey, I feel like you're my daughter. Like, I want to help you. And, you know, that definitely <laughs> has a gender connotation to it, but in a really positive way. And so there's yeah. Chicago's a very friendly ecosystem of people wanting to help each other. And we need to capitalize on that as an ecosystem. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I think that's, that's a great place to, to wrap this up and the idea that nobody gets very far on their own. We all need help. Yes. Don't be shy to, to offer and don't be don't and even be less shy to to ask, because I think that's the real problem is uh, there is a lot of resources, a lot of people out there with a lot of experience and they'd love to share it, have it have value to the next generation. And too often we don't we don't knock on the door and just ask for a moment of time. But I think that's a great place to close. And so, Christy. I really want to say thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. So we also wanted to thank our listeners. We really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us today. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32. 